City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and uh, look, let's start with our customary. I'll just pour a cup of tea for Karina. There we are. It's Karina. I'll pour one for Kevin, that's me. And there we are, we're now into the show. That's great. Now, I'm just gonna, hang on, I'm just going to pass this over to Karina, though. Or she's going to have to reach over or something. There we are. Okay, done, done, done. And in fact, it is the second Wednesday of the month. It's the day when we do energy-related issues. And we're going to be talking to Anna Langmans, I think her name is, but we'll check that out, um, from Friends of the Earth. She um, She's involved with a program for uh, a people's climate strategy, which is being launched next week. This was also on the FAUX program yesterday morning, but uh, we rang her up. We got it today, not specific. We'll talk about that, but also because of a few developments in the past few weeks, the way the government is still really ignoring climate change issues. Uh, a couple of ironies last week, uh, Malcolm Turnbull got knocked back. He got appointed, then a couple of days later, unappointed, uh, to run a clean energy um, authority in New South Wales uh, because he supported, uh, he opposed coal mining. Now, I thought there was something with irony. If you oppose coal mining, you can't run a clean energy show. Um, and simultaneously last week, Grant King, who was former head of the Business Council of Australia, had been on many boards over the years and for many years head of Origin Energy, was appointed to the government's climate change authority to, quote, overhaul it. And um, I wanted, we're going to talk to Anna about some of those issues and whether, whether they uh, are good or bad signs. I think they're probably bad. Uh, Karina, Karina's actually... I must say, um, making a Cheshire cat look pretty grim at the moment, but then she does bury with the Western Bulldog, so maybe that is the reason she's got this constant smile on her face. <laughs> uh, Karina, is that the case? Oh, I don't know. I came into the studio pretty late today, but I'm mm. full of endorphins from the bike ride. Ah, Tell you what, yeah. constant lateness really helps with fitness levels when you mm. don't drive. Yes, well, I made my third trip in a row, third week in a row riding here on a bike this week, which I'm back to, which is good, because that's a sign that I'm getting better from the illness I had late last year and early this year. So getting my strength back, I've now ridden here three Wednesdays in a row. From good Brunswick. on you, Kevin. That's actually so quite anyway, a ride as well. Well, it's not bad. I mean, I've do it, done it for years, but it, it was, uh, yeah, I didn't feel up to it for a while there, but I'm back to it here. Now, that's good. a good sign. Uh, I thought we'd kick off with a couple of Herald Sun things, uh, Karina. Well, that, by the way, that little inner dude was to allow me to have a sip of tea, <laughs> which, which I'll now do again. Hang on. That's all right. I, oh. I wouldn't say the Herald Sun is um, off-brand for no, us. No, but so. I just want to – we don't like to quote Andrew Bolt through the head too much, but <laughs> he had this amazing comment about the, the doll bludger who died last week at 99, as if, you know, he'd never die or something. Um, and he <laughs> says he says he never publicly complained that life was tough, and I thought – which bit of his life was tough? I don't know. Maybe the fact that he never got a letter from the Queen for turning 100. Oh. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> like that one? <laughs> that may be it. Maybe <laughs> I know. Anyway, he was, apparently life was tough for the poor, poor old bloke. I think the only thing we can say is it's one less mouth for the British taxpayer to feed. Although uh, 
for, for recent times, I guess he wouldn't be eating too much. But anyway, <laughs> still, nonetheless, that, that's it. The other one, though, yesterday I thought was quite fascinating. Front page picture of these three blokes. Um, one is a um, an Afghan. Well, one, yes, one one bloke is actually a Vietnam vet, and the other ones are uh, an East Timor veteran and uh, and a World War Two veteran. And in their in their you know, medals and one bloke in army outfit, veterans are being urged to join Melbourne's Anzac Day march after only 900 of a possible 5,000 diggers signed up so far. World War II vets, the youngest in their 90s, have been among the most determined to participate, but COVID concerns have made other cautions and the headline, Call to Arms for Anzac March, report page six. We won't go on to page six and look at the report, but I thought, well, we look forward now uh, in the next few weeks leading up to the 1st of May for the Herald Sun to have a front page picture of maybe some veterans of industrial disputes, some veterans of, uh, of union activity, etc., calling to arm, calling people to come out and march on May Day. Perhaps that will be, we'll see that in the Herald Sun, do you think? It's nice to hear you so optimistic for once. Wow. Yes, that's right. Yes, exactly. Another sip of tea, hang on. What kind of tea is this, by the way? This is just nice. straight jasmine tea today. Jasmine tea could be straight, lovely. it's jasmine anyway. Um, <laughs> Now I just want to—I do want to go into this one though because it's—it's—it's it's, it's the financial review, but it, it also indicates the way newspapers can give us headlines that have much, haven't got much to do with the facts. Uh, this week, the Grattan Institute and their spokesperson on energy, Tony Wood, has written a piece um, saying that we can. In fact, it opens up saying Australia's national electricity market can achieve net zero emissions without threatening affordability or reliability of supply. This simple but clear conclusion flows from analysis published in a new Grattan report in the name of the report. This report debunks two competing myths. First, that we need to continue to rely on coal-fired power stations. And second, that moving rapidly to 100% renewable electricity is the best way to reach net zero emissions. And he says, they say we can get to 90% pretty quickly and then the 10% with gas. Uh, but they also say, at one point, uh, gas will gas, gas with offsets will be lo- the lowest cost backup technology until zero emissions alternatives, and this is a bit where he goes off the rails, such as hydrogen fire generation, well that's all right, carbon capture and storage, that's not all right, modular nuclear reactors, not all right, or pumped hydro storage are economically competitive for long duration funding, so it's not a, not a perfect report in any way, but this will happen as zero emissions options become cheaper and offsets become increasingly expensive, offsets, that's offsets to car, to, to to pollution, uh, obviously become increasingly um, cheaper and less expensive. Now, I, I raise that bit about expensive because it's the only time in the whole article that the word is used. And yet, in a news report back on page three, which most people would read rather than go into the full article at the back, the headline is, Roll for Gas, No Need for Coal, Grattan. Now, the, the, the Fin Review is very much in favour of gas, the gas-led recovery and pushing all the big companies that are going for gas. Yeah. So, role for gas, I would have thought if I was doing that headline in my journalist days, I would have said, <laughs> you know, we can, we can reach 100% quickly um, uh, as, as in the positive sides of the report. But then it, then it goes on to say, in the he- um, Australia, the, the story starts with, 
Australia does not need coal-fired power stations to keep electricity bills down, but rushing to 100% renewable energy will be, quote, expensive without major, and it puts expensive in quotes, without major technology breakthroughs to provide backup power during long winter wind droughts. The findings from the Grattan Institute debunk the myth that cheap coal power stations need to be kept running, etc., but Uh, But they also sound a distinct note of caution against a full-on shift to an all-renewable electricity supply system. Now, they put expensive there, indicating that renewables would be expensive, but he says exactly the opposite in that article. And the article, in fact, the emphasis of it is that we can get to 100% or 90% in their terms very quickly indeed. Yet, from that headline, um, they're simply pushing gas and, and saying that renewables will be expensive, continuing that myth. Well, I guess what we can do is very, very different to what will happen because of the bottom line for certain people, expensive for certain people. Yeah, well, we've got... In fact, I was talking to some people over lunch on Sunday and some people disagree with me. um, They were saying, well, industry's way ahead of government now. Like we've said, the people are way ahead of government on this for a long time. They're saying now industry is and that Grant King, for instance, we'll talk about it later with Anna, but his appointment for instance, might lead to improvements. Um, I have my doubts, I must admit, but there are people who say because industry's waking up for financial reasons, really, mm. economic reasons, that you know they need to do something about climate change, then um, then really you know, we shouldn't worry about in business taking them over. Now, mm. I disagree with a lot of... I just had a few disagreements over lunch on Sunday on that one, but yeah. <laughs> but there you are. Business will lead the way or something. That's right, a business-lead recovery Jesus. on climate change. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> now, another one that... Um, uh, just having a quick look at here, um, Karina, um, you'll be pleased to know that our Prime Minister now suggests we could have a Pacific Islands Regiment mm, made up of people from throughout the Pacific. Uh, it's, this, this comes out of a parliamentary inquiry to help forge closer military ties between the Australian Defence Force and neighbouring island nations amid growing tensions over, and here's the key, China's efforts to build regional influence. So again, having ignored Pacific Islanders and, and that part of the world for so long, and the, the, our neighbours around us, uh, we suddenly take an interest in them because we want to counter Chinese influence. And the idea now is we even set up a special military body to uh, to do it, which is quite extraordinary, I would have thought. How wonderful uh, is just the, the the military bringing people together? Isn't war just great? It is great. It is wonderful. Mm. Uh, the regiment would conduct humanitarian and disaster relief missions and peacekeeping operations. So that's the peacekeeping, except peacekeeping. when they kill people. Oh, that's yeah. right, yeah. And in fact, Hasty, that ex SAS federal member in Western Australia, Andrew Hasty, arch conservative of the highest order, or lowest <laughs> order, depending how you look at it, um, he came out overnight. You might have heard on the news this morning, and he said that while military is you know can do this and do that, he said the prime the prime course, the prime role of military is mortal whatever, you know, but he, he was, I'm not sure the exact word he used, but he meant your prime role is to kill people, to preserve our values and all that. So so he admitted it. I mean, they, they train killers. Their role in life is to kill people. Uh, and uh, the House of Representatives Defence Subcommittee um, spent 
16 months looking at how to strengthen defence ties with Pacific nations. <laughs> what they did for 16 months? Anyway, never mind. <laughs> with, with fisheries management, surveillance and intelligence collection, disaster relief, climate change and the coronavirus pandemic identified as key areas. And MPs called for increased integration of Australian, Pacific Island and other military forces on combining, combined training and operations, suggesting one such way could be to establish a Pacific Islands regiment within the Australian Defence Force and on it goes. It's, uh, I don't really know what that means. It sounds maybe one, one big giant 16-month recruitment drive or something. I don't know. It just it puts images in my head. I don't... And I suppose there's other countries out there, the, the islanders have to, uh, have to agree at some point on this and they might think that what they're getting off China is a lot better than joining Australia in a defence force. I'm not sure. I don't... The whole thing is a bit baffling to me, but well, yes. <laughs> that's all I can really say no, about well, that. No, well, they understand that we've got to leave it to people, people who know, like Scott Morrison, obviously. Yeah. He's, he's doing a the great experts. job at the moment. He's, geez, he's got everything under control, hasn't he? <laughs> um, yeah. The, the other, another disturbing report in the past week or so was that um, the Commonwealth Ombudsman has has got stuck into the government for continuing to chase Australians to pay their welfare debts even after conceding its automated compliance scheme was illegal. So there's a concern that they're still following up people and they even suggest that people who had money returned to them after the whole thing was found to be totally illegal and then then the finding late last year, uh, they're actually now, there's suggestions they might actually follow up and try and reclaim what they refunded. Uh, what? Well, yeah, um, and um, the um, yeah. So it, it's as I say, it's quite. Uh, but Michael Manthorpe, the Onsman, said uh, Services Australia. <coughs> no, he asked. He asked them whether it intended to revisit and potentially re-raise debts. It advised that it is considering the circumstances in which this may be appropriate. We do not consider that Services Australia, which is now the body that does all this, has mm. been sufficiently transparent with individuals about the possibility for those individuals who have had income average debts refunded, any future decision by Services Australia to revisit and re-raise debts may cause distress. So there's a few worrying signs there about the uh, the whole thing. <sighs> yeah... It's fairly worrying. And just a, just a warning here, because we are going to talk about sexual violence, I guess, in a sense. But uh, Thank you, Kevin. Please, thanks. All right. Uh, but uh, just an extraordinary comment from Imran Khan, the, um, the President or Prime Minister of Pakistan, who, of course, was a famous cricketer. And it points out here that in his, play, in his cricket days, he was a playboy around London and dating young women all over the place. And, in fact, a, um, his um, a former... Goldsmith, whom he's married to, whatever her name is, I can't think of my name. Um, he was married to, um, at one stage, uh, she comes from a very rich family, of course, uh, said, I'm hoping this is a misquote or a, or a mistranslation. The Imran I knew used to say, put a veil on the man's eyes, not on the woman. And his current wife gets around in full, full covered gear. But he said, this is the extraordinary thing, uh, he said, women's he blamed women's dress for a surge in rape cases in Pakistan. Uh, and he he said, um, 
he said he w- we've asked what he was doing to combat a rise in sexual violations in Pakistan or violence in Pakistan. He said lashing out at declining standards of modesty among women. The, he replied that in, an increase in rape was the consequences of any society where vulgarity is on the rise. Conceding that rape attacks were increasing, he urged women to cover up to avoid tempting potential attackers and praise the Islamic concept of purdah or modesty. This entire conception of purdah is to avoid temptation. Not everyone has the willpower to avoid it, he's said. Uh, and, of course, it points out that the you know, attacks on women are very strong there and even um, even um, honour killings, honour killings still go on in Pakistan. So, you know, women's, women's life there is very precarious. And here's the Prime Minister saying they have to dress up, you know, not, not to attract... Uh, it's very violence. in the news nowadays, isn't it? Yeah. It's that, well, it always has been, really, but it's just this ongoing politicisation of women's bodies by non-women. Um, it's it's almost like the opposite of what's going on in France right now, where they're, you know, banning the hijab for yeah. people under 18 years old. That's, you know, why it's, it's actually the exact same thing. It's politicisation of people's bodies for I don't know I just it it's really disgusting it really irks me yeah well that's uh, that's a pretty devastating comment really from, from a prime minister to say that anyway I know but you know how much better is ours oh well he's not but uh, no. I mean he's he just shuts up effectively goes into a cocoon Oof. and he's he minister for women does absolutely nothing um, but I think I think I did. I say on air last week. I can't recall. I did say it on the week that was that uh, she might be a closet feminist. In fact, Maurice Payne, because as Minister for Women, doing nothing is probably a lot better than doing something. So maybe by doing nothing, she's helping women because she's not doing anything that damages them. <laughs> Silver linings, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's Jeez. that's a distinct possibility. <laughs> um, now, I mentioned last week that uh, employers, of course, particularly in hospitality in those areas, have called for a wage freeze in the national wage case this year, the minimum wage case, the lowest of low-paid workers' wage case. Mm. Uh, last year, they were granted an incredible increase of one point something percent, but bosses didn't have to pay it until February this year. So they've really, <clears throat> they've really had a six-month or whatever um, holiday uh, from it anyway. But it's up again now at the moment. The ACTU is asking, I think, for something like 3.5%. The bosses are saying there should be a wage freeze. And the Financial Review came out with an extraordinary piece of um, typical Financial Review editorialising. Uh, wage grab, they call it. Wage grab must not vandalise job recovery. This is trying to get a bit of money into the pockets of the lowest of low-paid workers. And it says Australia has led the world in suppressing COVID-19 and reopening the economy. But the good news on the economy and jobs has been bought with borrowed money that will have to be um, repaid. Economic vandals would seek to sabotage this by ratcheting up the national wage floor by 3.5%, just as many small businesses, particularly in hospitality, entertainment and tourism, are battling to stay afloat after such a horror year. That's what the ACTU is demanding from the Fair Work Commission after the tribunal's low-quality decision in the middle of last year's pandemic crisis to increase the minimum wage by 1.75%. 
That increase rightly produced the first uh, dissenting opinion from economist Mark Wooden on the Commission's minimum wage panel in 30 years. The ACTU's latest demand, and it talks about what it would do, it would raise wages by 26.38 a week and um, only 1.7% of workers actually earn this basic amount and many of them do not come from poor households. No, they don't. They just stay poor because they just become poorer from every way, every time they get a pay, a pay packet, I suppose. But the unique effect of Australia's minimum wage, already the highest in the world on purchasing power parity, is to drive up the pay of another 2.2 million workers on rewards that are geared to it. Two-thirds of these workers would not be considered low earners, and on it goes. So, um, yes, so the lowest of low paid apparently are going to destroy the country. Oh, yeah, while, while we're begging for scraps, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, we are, uh, really, because 3.5% is nowhere near the fact that wages have been falling in real terms for many years. And employers keep saying, as we keep saying on this program, employers keep saying they're concerned about slow wages growth, and we keep pointing out to them there's a fairly simple solution to that, <laughs> uh, which they can't seem to grasp somehow. Yeah. Anyway... On the same matter, um, there's been a in America. There's been a, a a vote among Amazon workers whether they want to join a union or not, and Amazon has been surprise, surprise, strongly opposing it. And it says, in fact, that if uh, if, it, if workers were unionised, then they'd have to lose lots and lots of workers they couldn't afford to to keep them, which indicates anyway that they're paying below wages and you know, ripping off workers at a great rate. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, the the they want the what the union wants is uh, beside higher pay, they want Amazon to give warehouse workers more break time and to be treated with respect. Many complain about their back-breaking 10-hour workdays with only two-minute breaks. Amazon's response to that is that the warehouse created thousands of jobs with an average pay of $15.30 an hour, more than twice the minimum wage in Alabama where this vote's taking place. Workers also get benefits including health care, vision and dental insurance without paying union dues, the company said. Uh, and so on it goes, but they're about to get the result of that and... Uh, uh, Amazon says that, well, if it has to, it's going to be in real trouble. And the same thing with Deliveroo here. Uh, Deliveroo has said that um, it would be forced to reduce the size of its workforce if it had to engage in, engage its riders as employees with minimum conditions after operating as a major source of jobs during the pandemic, etc. The company, which engages about 8,000 riders as independent contractors, has told the new Senate inquiry into job security that it acted as a significant lifeline for workers. It said proposals for gig workers to have employee-like minimum pay and conditions would be incompatible with on-demand work and would require it to have set shifts resulting in fewer riders on the road. And on it goes about how this would kill it if it uh, had to actually uh, pay workers a salary and and actually employ them. Yeah. Well, I don't know the exact terminology of it, but I do know that the way... That companies like Uber and Deliveroo have gotten away with that for so long is—is is it because? Correct me if I'm wrong. They consider their business model that of like a marketplace where people can interact yes, independently yes. Yeah, within they can it, come and go when they want, and then don't have to pay minimum wage for that reason. I do know that Menulog has come out and said recently that they're going to, um, what is it? Roll out, roll out an employee model in Australia, 
um, giving their couriers minimum wage starting with a trial in the Sydney CBD. Um, so mm. hopefully that works out and shows that it can be done and hopefully people can kind of make the switch and, you know. Yeah. And give them decent wages. That's exactly. I mean, I mean minimum living, wage is not a decent wage. Even the, the normal, even that minimum wage we talked about earlier. Right? It's a start, but it's, as we yeah. say before, begging for scraps. <laughs> well, exactly. And... Uh, yeah, they anyway. It's Deliveroo's latest little performance, and uh, you're mm. pleased to know though that just in case you, you, we think, well, they haven't got the money to pay them all that because they're you know they're they're pretty desperate. Poor darlings. Goldman Sachs, one of the biggest uh, finance companies in the world, last week bought seventy five million, and it's one hundred and thirty five point four. That's pounds, so it's one hundred and thirty five point four million Australian dollars in Deliveroo shares on the London Stock Exchange. So if they can afford 135.4 million to buy shares in the company, I mean, surely the company can't then be expected to actually pay workers, can it? Mm. I don't. I'm not no. even gonna. No, I'm okay. not even gonna dignify that with <laughs> no, an answer. Can no, I? okay. Right. <laughs> most most of the things I say aren't worth dignifying with anything, but that's beside <laughs> the point. <laughs> you, you can. You, you, you're glad. To, I'm going to pour myself another bit of tea. You want to top up your tea? Yeah. I yeah, I might do. Um, maybe let's go to a song. This is Fitzroy Crossing by Dan Sultan. All right. Well, if we go to a song, and in fact, when we wander back, we'll we'll have Anna on the line. And uh, sounds great. Okay. Uh, you're listening to City Limits on Three CR. I just say that Radio. was one way of shutting me up, really, wasn't it? It was very clever. Very I good. try. I try yeah, my best. Yeah, well done. Let me just turn your mic off now. <laughs> this is Fitzroy Crossing by Dan Sultan. Thank you for 
treated us every day And I hope someday that I can do the same And I can see that Fitzroy River in my mind And I've been thinking about all of those good times And I remember just how sad I was The day I had to leave And I knew that I'd be back again sometime And I knew that I'd be back again sometime And I knew that I'd again sometime Okay, back on City Limits, and uh, Anna Langford's on the line. Anna's with Friends of the Earth. She's uh, involved in what is called a people, people's uh, climate strategy, which is going to be launched next week, and we'll come to that. But uh, And those who listened to the FAUX program yesterday will think of, we're repeating ourselves, but why not? Um, but there are a couple of other things I wanted to talk to Anna about. Um, Anna, just by the way, um, you were pleased to hear in terms of climate change that um, an associate professor at Sydney, Thomas Hubble, we mentioned this on the program last week, has advised people in those areas that were flooded around the Hawkesbury River and around Sydney last week, they should all have a boat on their roof permanently. Um, <laughs> it's <really laughs> an wow. inter- interesting situation <laughs> when we get to the stage where in climate change, they say, well, you've got to have a boat on your roof uh, to survive. Yeah, geez, just the new standard with every house. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> your own boat, but it's on top of the roof. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that's just that was just a by the by, but I found that interesting. Uh, look, last last week though, the government did announce that Grant King, a former president of the Business Council of Australia, and he has, he was right behind the push for an eighty billion dollar LNG export industry in Central Queensland, and also headed Origin Energy for many years, has been appointed head of the Climate Change Authority. And the word they've used is to overhaul it, um, uh, putting and, and just to just to add to that because just you might think well maybe he's seen the light. He opened his first comment was he he believes the move to reduce emissions should not come at the expense of jobs or economic growth. For many years, I have considered the challenge of reducing emissions while growing our economy or jobs to be one of the most pressing challenges facing our community. It's not a great sign, is it? Um, no, and uh, yeah, I, I think just based on everything about uh, Grant King's background, like there's there's nothing trustworthy about him in this position. Um, you know, you mentioned Origin, which like has been trying to start um, fracking operations um, all over the country for years, and also um, his yeah position at the Business Council of Australia. Um, the Business Council of Australia has actually been uh, a voice lobbying for lower climate ambition um, from for the Victorian state government um, as it prepares to set emissions reduction targets, um, and yeah, we've that's like one of the 
they're one of the climate action blockers that we've been battling for the last few years um, who keep on making this call that the emissions cuts um, should, like the big cuts should come later, um, you know, not any time in the next 10 years when we know that this is the crucial 10 years. Yeah, in fact, Angus Taylor, the minister, Angus Tailings, um, said um, <laughs> Grant King is perfectly suited for this important role with his extensive background across many parts of the energy sector. Well, I suppose from Angus's point of view, he is, but um, not so much for others. Um, the, 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 he, also, he appointed two other people to the board at the same time, um, the Australian Industry Greenhouse Network CEO Susie Smith and former Managing Director of the Bank of New York Australia John McGee. Now, I'm not sure what they're going to bring to it in terms of climate, but the Australian Industry Greenhouse Network, they, they tend to be, in fact, in support of fossils, don't they? Um, yeah, like I, I think just the general direction of all those appointments um, just points to like the, the attempt to do everything but dismantle the climate change authority that um, this government has, you know, really been trying to do um, for, like, seven years now. Um, I mean, originally they just wanted to gut it entirely, but I think because that would have been, um, like, so, like, extra controversial, they've just settled for stacking it with people who will do everything to slow the action that we need. Yeah, in fact, King headed an inquiry into last year for the government, and he's the one who recommended they, they, that the Clean Energy Authority, uh, Finance Authority, in fact, um, in, be involved with burying your head in the sand with um, burying <laughs> coal underground, burning, burning climate uh, CO2 underground. So, uh, again, he's off to a big start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, this obsession with carbon capture and storage. Um, like as though it's the thing that's going to like save us like so that we can just keep on burning fossil fuels um and like again yeah this guy's also said um well he's called for a reduction of the federal renewable energy target and he has blamed higher electricity prices um on renewables and like it's just this general massive um damage to the conversation like around climate solutions and also the speed with which we need to roll them out. Yeah, we quoted earlier the Grattan Institute's um, report last week that uh, that in fact we could reach, they, they say 90%, but we could very quickly get to 90% renewable without really affecting the economy. We, we commented earlier that the Financial Review report said the very opposite of what the report said. Um, but um, and they have some bad things in it. They they recommend they talk about nuclear and CCS and those things. But mm. nonetheless, um, you've got a a body that's not madly radical coming out and saying, look, we can easily reach it without really impacting on the economy. Yeah, like which I think um, I mean we, we've seen that from so many different research bodies for years now, like just showing the obvious benefits to communities and the economy that really ramping up um, the renewables rollout will bring. Um, and so that's why, like, it it just makes it even more obvious that these people setting up that false um, duality that it's either workers or the environment, like, is just... It's so not true anymore. It's just purely, like, ideological um, battle. And it's so unfair on the workers, not not only in the mines and the coal-fired power plants, but on their whole 
communities um, that have to have, like, they're having their future kept as just this question mark by this ideological wrestle. Yeah, it's pretty awful. In fact, of course, that you know, their interest should be in, in a transition for those workers, providing the money, providing the finance, providing the industries that will employ those workers in a transition period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, it's the, the focus should be on justice for workers. And like, we, we know that keeping these industries propped up is not just for any working people um, on an, in another way because we're already seeing that climate change is um, already a massive OH&S um, occupational health and safety issue for working people everywhere um, because of the impacts that we're already seeing um, from, you know, the, the bushfire smoke last year to people um, working outside or um, hospital, like nurses overwhelmed with um, people sick from the smoke or people um, working outside in, in often, like, low-paid farm jobs who have to keep going during heat waves. Um, and there's no, like, there's not currently um, protections in place for them. And um, to keep on propping up these few fossil fuel industries that are going to make that worse is just, it, it's so unfair on all working people. Mm. Overnight, I heard a rep- I heard an interview with Greta Thunberg done by the BBC in which one of the questions was people can people one of the criticisms of you Greta is that you keep saying the same thing over and over and she says well I have to because they're doing nothing about it no? <laughs> <clears throat> that's um which was a great reply but it brings us to Australia I mean in fact um I think we've already made the point I guess but Australian government really is is doing so little isn't it when it when it should be doing so much more Oh exactly yeah and I think like for for people um that working really hard on the solutions that will benefit society as a whole. It's, it's just, like, extra jarring to hear from this federal government that, that they care about workers when we know um, in, in so many ways that they don't, not, not just on climate but also with other general, um, like, workers' protections and, um, yeah, like, everything that we want to see in a societal transformation um, they're against and so um yeah like it's 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 feeling pretty ridiculous at this stage to still be hearing this from the from the people leading the country Mm. well a good example last week was in new south wales where their minister has been he's a liberal member of course obviously but he's been in fact taking on the federal government in terms of trying to do something in new south wales about climate change but even he gave up in the end last week. Malcolm Turnbull was appointed to um, chair a clean energy authority and then uh, two days later or so was unappointed because he came out uh, and said he didn't believe coal should be uh, part of the process. So if, if you say mm. coal shouldn't be part of clean energy, apparently you can't have a job in clean energy. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah that, that was pretty worrying and I think um, extra worrying to see the role that the Murdoch media played in that. Um, and just the, the power that they still hold over, um, it's like over 60% of Australia's media environment currently. Because um, I, I think, well, yeah, from what I saw, a, a lot of the reaction was um, really being fueled by them. 
Yeah, and in fact, um, just to pursue this uh, encouraging uh, line we're taking today, um, <laughs> the the EPA came out about a month ago with a review on coal-fired power stations and recommended that there be no further reduction in CO2 releases. They did they did call for reductions in some, some other pollutants that come out, but... Uh, they they maintain the current level of, of CO2 um, from our coal-fired, and as we know, very filthy coal-fired power stations, which again, uh, it's been heavily criticised by the environment movement, but again, it's a sign of where governments seem to be light years behind where the, in, where the community's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a really worrying sign, and I think just extra... Um, painful for so many communities after, you know, the the bushfires last year, um, like that sign of um, how here and now climate change already is, when often it, it's still talked about by members of parliament as something that's 10 years away or 50 years away um, in the future and, like, not... Oh, yeah, that's just at the North and South Poles. And, um, yeah, it's... It's like it's just such a slap in the face for the communities that are already battling um, climate impacts and are on the first climate front lines in Australia. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's so. And and of course, the other one, well, the EPA, um, unfortunately, I think everyone knows, uh, seems to be uh, seems to be just work for pollution polluters anyway. But that's uh, that's just our our point of view, and I'm sure we're wrong. Um, but uh, again, in the last month or so, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, the federal government, the state government, and unfortunately the union uh, got together to guarantee more funding for more public funding to keep the Portland Portland Alcoa plant going. Again, one of the biggest or the biggest individual user of electricity in this state. And of course, it comes from Gippsland right across country. Uh, down to Portland, uh, again, it would seem to be something that they should be uh, trying to reverse rather than encourage. Yeah, I um, don't, don't know so much about that one um, at the moment. Uh, sorry, but, um, yeah, like, I've, I think I think what's interesting um, is that, like, that we just need... Um, we just need more direction, both from um, the federal and state governments but of course like gapingly so the federal government um in this kind of like this overall direction on where we need to go on climate that will see us not um yeah like uh having these decisions made which are so like contradictory to each other and um like seem to be going in opposite directions and um yeah like there needs to be so much more of a holistic um look at things and then direction um, from, yeah, from the government. Yeah, we're talking to Anna Langford from Friends of the Earth. And there was a good news story a couple of weeks ago, of course, the state government knocking back the uh, that dreadful Crib Point proposal by AGL to have a floating gas, fire, gas mm. uh, plant there. Uh, unfortunately, of course, it's also the state, same state government's talking about opening up gas around Victoria um, anyway, gas exploration and extraction. But um, so there's a bit of good and bad in all that. Yeah, that uh, that a couple of weeks ago was such an incredible um, win to see for that community um, who've been fighting for that for such a long time. Um, and yeah, like the, the gas 
story in Victoria is really interesting because, um, of course, Victoria does have the strongest, uh, one of the strongest bans on fracking um, in the world after um, a five-year campaign by uh, farming communities across the state. But now there is this um, new threat that we're facing from both um, offshore drilling and um, onshore gas that will be extracted but not by fracking. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw, but we also um, saw this community from Apollo Bay come to the city um, to like call on the government to block this offshore gas drilling um, because of the harm that it's going to cause to their tourism and um, fishing industries. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it, as a new industry, it doesn't make sense for Victoria at all when um, our coastlines, um, like those industries are keeping those areas strong and alive and, um, and also like what it will do to, to the natural environment. Um, it's, it's just so not worth the risk. Yeah, because despite what they say, something always goes wrong with those things, doesn't it? So you, end up, <laughs> I mean, they, but they always go. I like they always use the phrase. Of course, they say the environmental impact will be minimal, but that indicates <laughs> there'll be an environmental impact of some sort. And as we keep saying, the ideal impact is zilch, naught. Um, yeah, exactly. And even like the the way that's framed, as though the environment is. Completely, completely separate from all of us, like from the economy and like the rest of the way we live our lives. It's always like a sort of footnote to things, uh, rather right. than being yeah, right. like rather than being the biosphere yeah. we all Yes, by the way, there's also an environment. Yeah, um, the, the <laughs> other, of course, the other, the other offshore one that is encouraging in some ways is the Star of the South. It's called, isn't it, the one down in Gippsland, mm. which would be a wind yep. offshore wind power one. The only question with that is, I notice it it will require um, uh, pipelines to carry or to carry the whatever to carry the or transmission wires or whatever to carry the uh, the wind the electricity off uh, through into the into the grid. Uh, is that a, is that likely to raise some environmental problems? That the onshore side of it. Do you know? Um, yeah, I, I think that's like still in the process of um, being analysed, and um, yeah, our. Um, Yes to Renewables campaign at Friends of the Earth is um, part of like uh, pushing to you know ensure that um, in that in that process um, yeah like a- any of that uh, as much as possible is avoided in um, environmental harm with the transmission lines um, and yeah like I, I think it's it's just a reminder that with the transition to renewable energy it is important for uh, community groups to keep um like just a watchful eye on how exactly it's rolled out um with all new projects um and to make sure that yeah like it's ticking all the boxes um for uh, still uh, protecting the environment yeah and now well let's move on to um give you a plug uh or your campaign a plug the people's climate strategy can you tell us about that Mm, um, yeah, so this has been a really exciting project that um, Friends of the Earth has been coordinating for the last 10 months. And basically what it's been about is that the Andrews government was required to write Victoria's first climate strategy 
um, last year by October 31st. Um, and it's basically like if, if emissions reduction targets are the goal for where we need to get to, then this climate strategy is the plan um, for how we get there. But, um, of course, understandably, the process was delayed last year by the pandemic um, taking centre stage and requiring emergency response for so many months. Um, and as we foresaw that that was going to happen, um, we decided that it would be really amazing to activate citizens around the state to participate in forming a people's climate strategy uh, to then present to the government as a sign, a signal of the level of ambition that we want um, and what kinds of climate solutions we want to see rolled out by the government in Victoria. Right, and so where, where are we at? Um, well, we're at the stage I have been so excited for for so long um, where the report is finished and going to hit the printing press tomorrow um, to finally be um, yeah published in a week's time. Um, so next week we have our launch event of the completed People's Climate Strategy, um, which will also be the first in-person event we will have had for the whole project, um, given most of it was carried out in lockdown. And um, that's going to be next Thursday night, April 22, which is also Earth Day um, at Trades Hall. And, um, yeah, we do have, because it's in-person, a 100-person safety limit um, for COVID, so everyone will need to register um, through the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website. But, um, yeah, we, we would love anyone to come along who has been part of it or is interested to hear about um, its findings and then what we're going to do next with it. Rightio, and we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that. We might get to what you're going to do next. But uh, I imagine there's going to be a government or industry might say, oh, Friends of the Earth, they probably just, you know, let's just consulted their own membership. It's a pretty limited number <laughs> of people, the people's so-called strategy. Uh, can you respond to that? Oh, well, yeah, like, uh, of course. Um, I, I think what's been really interesting for me is seeing the diversity of people um, that have participated in this project over the last year um, and all the different perspectives that they bring to what like, what it's like to experience climate change here and now in Victoria. And it's definitely... It hasn't been limited to the city. Like, we've had people chime in, um, contribute their, their thoughts and ideas from all over the state. Um, we've had, like, people from communities um, across regional Victoria um, talking in no uncertain terms about the climate impacts that they're seeing on the land right now and how that's impacting um, their ability to continue generations of, um, of farming um, and also from people along the coast in regional Victoria who are witnessing coastal erosion from sea level rise that's already happening um, so, like, we're, you know, um, we're really keen to profile these voices um, as the voices of people on the climate front lines across Victoria um, who, yeah, like, are, are demonstrating that climate change is already here and uh, not just, like, from... <laughs> not The call's not just coming from the inner city. 
And indeed, the campaign around the early one we talked about, the moratorium on um, fracking, is a good example of how faux and uh, and diverse communities across the state have worked together and, and shows the concerns of people right across the state about these issues. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, and we, we've also we've collaborated with a whole lot of different um, social justice groups on this project as well, um, including like strong voices from um, Trades Hall and different unions who are already part of... Um, like fighting for climate solutions um, that also benefit working people um, to be expanded and rolled out. So, for example, like the the rail tram and bus union, um, whose workers will be crucial to um, ensuring that Melbourne's public transport network um, is both like able to um, facilitate people in a way that's more cars off the road, but also is ready for. Um, to be climate resilient for a future with more heat waves and things that impact the network. Um, so, like, it's it's been really good to bring um, those perspectives in of, uh, like, of how we can centre workers' justice at the heart of this project um, because, um, yeah, like, the, that's where both the solutions are but also who the impacts are hitting. And I suppose some of the decisions might be made next Thursday night, but um, where do you see it going from here then, Anna? Um, Well, yeah, basically our plan is to get a copy on the desk of every politician in the state, um, both state and federal um, in Victoria. So that's 179 members of parliament altogether um, across the lower and upper houses of state and federal um, parliament. And um, we will need the help of community members to do that. Um, and so, yeah, we'll be really excited to, um, from the launch night, uh, get people to sign up for a delivery day action if they're, if they're interested, where they can deliver a copy to their local member of parliament. Um, because, yeah, the, the strategy, it's just full of these stories of people in every region who... Um, are like already seeing climate um, change happening with their own eyes and also have all these incredible ideas for local solutions to tackle every aspect of it. Mm. And we're going to have to wind up, but I presume most people consider the the fact that everyone's saying, well, we'll get to zero emissions by 2050 is, is unreal. Mm. I mean, it's, it's so many years away. Uh, yeah. It gives them a chance to do nothing. Yeah, it, like we we just we just need to really stop talking about uh, twenty fifty as the focus year. Like it, it needs to be twenty thirty that we've made the biggest heavy lift by, um, and that's what we try to emphasise in this strategy that um, the the biggest emissions cuts need to happen in this crucial ten years. Um, as of course the UN has um, emphasised in its reports multiple times over mm. the last few years. Um, and yet that starts at the local level, at the state level. And there was a report here a couple of months ago in Australia from scientists saying the same thing, that we need to, unless we do it by 2030, we, we, it's going to be out of control effectively. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, like, it'll, it'll be even harder to make the transition if we leave it too late. Like, it will be an unplanned, chaotic transition instead of the planned one we can do now 
that ensures there is um, justice for all communities. Yep, and if people we're gonna we'll better finish up, but we um, next Thursday, if people want to go, what's the contact? Yeah, so um, you can jump on the Act on Climate Vic Facebook page or Friends of the Earth Melbourne Facebook page, um, where you'll find the details for the launch event, um, or you can go on the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website um, where the event is also um, listed there. And we're selling tickets pretty fast, so would recommend um, grabbing one next couple of days if you're keen to come. Right, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Get in fast. <laughs> well, well said. You're a typical salesperson, um, Anna Langford. I thanks hope for not. <laughs> no, perhaps next, yeah, I was, I'm sorry, I said that to you. Yeah, uh, Anna, Anna Langford. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today, and we'll keep in touch on it. And good luck with the campaign. Thanks for having me. Okay. And it's from Friends of the Earth, of course, and they've got that next Thursday, the People's Climate Strategy, which is great. Karina, we're going to have to wind up because we have to finish a bit earlier these days in the studio. But uh, Just before we finish, I might just um, quickly talk about an event a little bit off topic, but some of our listeners might be interested in. So tonight at Cinema Nova, um, they're hosting an advanced screening of a documentary called The Dissident, if you've heard of it. So this is the story of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi oh. in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in uh, 2018 and um, the subsequent like global cover-up. Um, so it starts at 6.30pm and it's going to be followed by a panel discussion with um, some Melbourne journalists, uh, including our chairperson of 3CR. So Pilar Aguilera oh. will be there um, on that panel. And I guess, you know, if that if that sounds like your cup of French Earl Grey, um, you can get some info and tickets at cinemanova.com.au. Right, yeah, we might have some French Earl Grey next, next Wednesday in the studio then, oh, might we? I certainly hope so. <laughs> Didn't you like today's? <laughs> okay, that's it. Uh, thanks, everyone. Next week, by the way, is, um, is of course, uh, housing. And the week after, we've got Dave Sweeney, and we are going to talk about that situation in, in uh, Greenland I talked about last week. And mm. the election was held, by the way, and the environmental side won it. So uh, that's good news. But anyway, uh, Dave's coming on in two weeks. He knows a fair bit about it, and we're going to talk about it. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you've been listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Stay tuned for Anarchist World this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.